on this Palm Sunday morning when we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We come to the second section of the book of Numbers and the triumphal entry of the Israelites into the wilderness march toward the promised land. But before we read that word, let's go before the author in prayer. Let's pray. O God of revelation, speak to us again by your word. Cause us now not to seek revelation apart from you or apart from what it is that you have given so clearly by your word, but help us to hear you speak by your word, to know that what we hear is from you. To that end, we need your Holy Spirit to come now to bear witness to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, that we would receive it as your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Numbers chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 10, is the first of the three sections of this book of Numbers. The first section was constituting that first army. And then the second section that begins at chapter 10, verse 11 and ultimately goes through chapter 25 with some of the most interesting narratives in all of scripture is where we see the accounts of the failures in the march. And yet this morning we see that the march begins really well. I'm going to read Numbers 10 beginning at verse 11 and through 36 together as one. But listen to the four parts that first they will set out and then we'll see the 12 tribes with the leaders named, and I'll try not to butcher all those names too badly. And then a conversation between Moses and his brother-in-law, Hobab. That's a great name. And then a celebratory triumphal entry. So listen now to God's word. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the testimony Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. The divisions of the camp of Judah went first under their standard. Nashon, son of Amminadab, was in command. Nathanel, son of Zuar, was over the division of the tribe of Issachar. Eliab, son of Halon, was the division uh, over the division of the tribe of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the Gershonites and Merorites who carried it set out. The divisions of the camp of Reuben went next under their standard. Eleazar, son of Shadur, was in command. Shalumiel, son of Zerushadai, was over the division of the tribe of Simeon. And Eliasaph, son of Duel, was over the division of the tribe of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things. The tabernacle was to be set up before they arrived. The divisions of the camp of Ephraim were next under the standard. Elishama, son of Amihud, was in command. Gamaliel, son of Pedazer, was over the division of the tribe of Manasseh. And Abidin, son of Gideoni, was over the division of the tribe of Benjamin. Finally, as the rear guard for all the units, the divisions of the camp of Dan set out under their standard. Ahizer, son of Amishadai, was in command. Pagiel, son of Okrin, was over the division of the tribe of Asher, and Ahira, son of Enan, was over the division of the tribe of Naphtali. This was the order of march for the Israelite divisions as they set out. 
Now, Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us. We will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. He answered, no, I will not go. I am going back to my own land, my own people. But Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert, and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Well, up to this point, we have seen all the pregame, all the tailgating, Maybe think about uh, things like the Super Bowl when you say, when does the pregame show start? Well, it started you know, a couple weeks before the game ever did. Yeah, this whole Lord uh, extended pregame time uh, before the actual game begins. Let's recall the timeline, everything that's happened up to this march. First, there's the Exodus crossing the Red Sea that connects to the new year for Israel. In fact, back in Exodus 12, Uh, The Lord told the people, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. And so the institution of that original Passover preceding the Exodus was the first month of the Hebrew year, which is right now, uh, also the beginning of the agricultural year. And then it was two months following the Exodus that they traveled out into the desert and finally settled at the desert of Sinai at the foot of the Mount of Sinai. And then months of Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive revelation from the Lord. That revelation included instructions for building the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which was then fully built and set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. And the 12 tribes brought their offerings, as we read about in number 7. It was in the first month of the second year after the Exodus, that one-year anniversary, that the year began with the celebration of the Passover on the 14th day, and then a second celebration a month later for those who had been ceremonially unclean. The census was taken between those two Passover celebrations. And then our passage begins by telling us on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, that is the 20th day of the second month of the second year after leaving the Exodus, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And so the march begins. It's hard to kind of get all that pictured as a timeline, kind of see it again and again. You got the original Passover that precedes the Exodus, two months to travel and settle in the desert, and 10 months of Moses receiving revelation, the building of the tabernacle. It's set up, and then on the 20th day, the march begins following the census and the Passovers. So there's been 13 months of pregame, 13 months of preparation. 13 months since leaving Egypt that the march to the promised land actually begins. Now, isn't it true that sometimes the pregame is better than the game? Right? This happened for a long time in heavyweight fights. There would be the tail of the tape, the pre-fight commentary, expectations for weeks on end, and then the fight lasts for 30 seconds. <laughs> kind of a dud. 
Or you get a game that's a complete blowout and is really kind of uneventful. The hype is better than the event. Well, what are we going to have here? The beginning of the march goes really well. It's very exciting. In the weeks to come, we will read of the very interesting narratives about the march itself. But for the moment, consider again the preparation period and ask the question, couldn't the march have just happened? Couldn't they have just left Egypt and kept right on going to the promised land? Couldn't the game just happen without the pregame ritual? Well, the pregame, the preparation is important, especially for the participants. If you're a musician, you aren't simply given a piece of music and then the concert begins, right? There is days and weeks and months of practice that go into the concert. In all the arts, there is first the attaining of the skills and then working at the piece itself until it is ready to be unveiled so that the concert, the exhibit, the game is the outworking of the preparation. The 13 months of preparation for Israel was filled with receiving the revelation of God and putting it into practice of focusing in on the Lord. The 13 months of preparation for Israel was listening to God's word and doing what it says. The 13 months of preparation for Israel was a preparation for entering in and staying in God's presence. In the Exodus, the cloud was out in front of them. At Sinai, the cloud was up in the mountain and only Moses entered. But then when the tabernacle was built, the cloud came down and the Lord came into the midst of all Israel. When we come into God's presence for worship, it is understood that we have done so with a measure of preparation before. When you go to school every day, you make sure that you have prepared everything before you go. When you go to work every day, you make sure that you've prepared everything before you go. When you go to practice for sports, for music, for activities, you make sure you have everything prepared before you go. We are to come to worship with some measure of having prepared to enter into God's presence. The preparation is important. And so that worship is simply the outworking of the people's preparation. The march itself is fed by Israel's worship in God's presence. And so preparation for worship, the worship itself, equips and enables us to live out God's commands in the rest of life. And that's why we talk about worship as the highest priority, all of life built around it. But if we're honest, what happens for most of us in any given week is that all the activities of life take precedence and worship easily becomes the lowest priority, the most optional activity. And our exhaustion, the spiritual, emotional, and physical exhaustion are the result of putting everything else first and the worship of God last. It took 13 months of preparation and worship to pull the community of Israel together so that they could march. Now, the longest section of this passage takes the least comment. Verses 14 to 28 simply list the 12 tribes and the 13th tribe of the Levites who march in their appointed order. 
The leaders are named for the fourth time, having already been given in the first chapter census, in the second uh, chapter arrangement around the tabernacle, and in the seventh chapter as the representatives who brought the gifts to the tabernacle. And most study Bibles or other resources will draw the picture for you uh, of what this marching order looks like. It's especially helpful for visual learners. Out in front is Moses and Aaron and their sons who are carrying the ark. So picture that. The ark being carried by those Levitical priests is what goes out in front. And then kind of three wide, kind of NASCAR language, right? Three wide are the first set of three tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then following them is the Levite clans of the Gershonites and Merorites carrying the tabernacle frames, poles, tent pegs, all the miscellaneous stuff. Following them three wide are Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And then comes the Levite clan of the Kohathites carrying the most holy things. Our passage tells us in verse 21 that the order means that the Gershonites and Merorites are further out front so that they could set up the actual tabernacle before the Kohathites arrived with the tabernacle furnishings. Some good planning. Now following them, again three wide, are Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And then in the back serving as the rear guard for the whole nation, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Which means everyone had their appointed place in the march, just as everyone had their appointed place in camping around the tabernacle, just as the Levites and the Levitical clans had their appointed tasks for the carrying of the tabernacle itself, just like we all have our appointed place and tasks. Have you ever been standing in a line and there are people who seem to be doing whatever they can to try and move up a spot or two? Or you're part of a crowd waiting for maybe doors to open or a, a rope to drop so that everybody can, uh, can go in and gain entrance and that there's people kind of trying to move their way so that they can get in a slightly better position. The same thing happens in other aspects of life where people inappropriately assert themselves in order to get ahead. There are certainly appropriate ways that we are supposed to assert ourselves, times that we're supposed to, uh, to push forward. But much of the time, the Lord has given us our appointed place, our appointed task, and he calls us simply to be faithful in that. If we push, we make it difficult for everyone to do their part. What if the tribes all determined on their own to start jockeying for a better position? What if Dan, Asher, and Naphtali said, we don't want to be the rear guard. What if Gad said, we don't want to be behind the tent pegs, we want to be up closer to the ark. Those are reasonable requests, but they would be disobedience to God's commands. Let me say that again. They're reasonable requests, but they would be disobedience to God's commands. The God of order commands us to do things in a certain way. We may have a different way we want to do it. And in fact, the way we want to do it would probably work better for us personally and individually. But obedience to God's commands recognizes that God is doing more than what is best for me. Obedience is made easier when everyone is doing it. It's easier for Manasseh to be obedient if Simeon is being obedient. If the Gershonites are obedient, then it's easier for the Kohathites to be obedient. When any one part falls into disobedience, it affects the whole community. And that, of course, happens all the time. 
And what we learn from this is the importance not only of personal obedience, but the encouragement for the whole community to walk in God's ways and obedience together. These days, it is fashionable to speak disparagingly of organized religion, but immensely more dangerous than organized religion is disorganized religion. When everyone does whatever works for them, be true to yourselves, then we descend into utter chaos. It's the period that's described the judges as the time when Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Organized religion, we've got our problems because there is the jockeying and we need to keep each other accountable and we fail more than we succeed. But disorganized religion, where everybody is trying to do whatever works for them, is complete chaos and certainly does not bring honor to the God who has given us his commands for the way in which we are to do things. And so we show ourselves to trust the Lord by obeying him completely. And so if we think about trusting the Lord and obeying him completely, it sort of makes us ask, what's the deal with Moses and his brother-in-law, Hobab? Why is Moses compelling Hobab to come with them? Simply because Hobab knows the desert and will know good places to camp. He says, you can be our eyes. Does this mean that Moses does not trust that God will show them where to camp? Well, the text does not indicate that this is unfaithfulness on Moses' part. Rather, it is a solid picture of the interplay of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Is God leading them, or do they need to make decisions themselves along the way? Yes, right? We've seen that there are times that God gives very explicit and very specific directions that we are to follow exactly. But other times, the commands are rather broadly stated. And even in the most specific of directives, there are still decisions to be made. He tells certain Levitical clan, you guys carry the tent pegs. But not each tent peg was individually assigned by God. He didn't assign whether to pull it up with one hand or two hands or to use a tool. God gave no direction for bathroom breaks. So they just had to figure that one out themselves. Even in terms of worship, we abide by the regulative principle that says that we are to worship God the way that he has revealed by his word that he wants to be worshipped. But there's lots of ways in which the implementation of that worship may take place. God tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But what songs? What tune? In what key? What instruments? What tempo? How many songs should we sing? Well, God gives that broad directive, and we discern some aspects of implementation with wisdom and keep them within the parameters of God's revelation. And so that's what Moses is doing with Hobab. He says, you know the wilderness, you know the desert, and if you come with us, you can help us to be successful. But there's also a measure in which there's evangelism happening here. Moses is encouraging Hobab, there are good things that the Lord of salvation is going to do for us. And if you come and be a part of us, to leave your people, to leave your religion, and to come and surrender yourself to our God, then you are going to receive the good things that our God provides. So did Moses convince Hobab to go with them? Our text doesn't tell us here, but the answer is yes. And we know that from the book of Judges, because in Judges uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, we are told that the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, 
uh, and went and settled with the people. And then later in chapter 4, verse 11, even tells us about Haber the Kenite, who separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, uh, and pitched his tent. In fact, it's going to be Haber's wife uh, who kills the bad guy, uh, one of those judges, by driving a tent peg through his temple. It's a great story. It is to say that God had a future purpose for the family of Hobab. Moses saying, Hobab, come with us. And in fact, God had a plan that they would become the Kenites and that Jael, the heroine in the time of the judges, was to come. Now, all of that brings us to this, uh, this sort of entry and this triumphal entry uh, in the last part of chapter 10, that as they uh, set out, uh, whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. And in fact, what he said there was what he said every time they set out. And it became a part of Israel's processional liturgy. So that uh, David took it up into one of his psalms. Psalm 68 begins, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. And so at this point, as they set off on the march, all looks good. It is a triumphal entry into the wilderness. They should make it to the promised land in no time, except that things are going to fall apart quickly with major failures in the march. But God will ultimately redeem it for his glory, all of which sounds very familiar to the event that we remember this day, Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the crowds shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. But then we are told in Luke's account that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus knew in the midst of the celebration of the triumphal entry that there would be utter failure of his people, that he would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. Jesus knew that in 70 AD, the temple would fall in all Jerusalem with it. And yet Jesus also knew that he would be resurrected he knew the redemptive plan that he would be raised, that he would become the new temple with the Holy Spirit living within believers, not only Jews, but Gentiles in response to the gospel. And so it was a triumphal entry to be followed by the failures of God's people, to be followed by the redemptive success of Almighty God. And so even in life today, whatever our failures, personally, and corporately, God has a redemptive plan that he is accomplishing. In our New Testament reading earlier from 2 John, we read, this is love, that we walk according to his commands. And after warning about deceivers, false teachers, John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It is tempting to go out ahead, to go and do our own thing as opposed to sticking with the community and walking with the community in obedience to God's commands together. But that's what we're called to do. 
It often means going slower than you want, doing it differently than you want, but you do it according to God's commands for his glory, for the edifying of the whole community, and so the community is together in building the kingdom. With God out front conquering all his and our enemies, we can be successful. Failure comes when we go on ahead thinking we know better than God or can do it apart from God. And so preparation for, active engagement in, the worship of God within the community of faith is of central importance in maintaining our walk with the Lord. It doesn't always seem like it. There may seem like a more efficient way, a way that works better for each of us individually, but it is simply what the Lord has commanded. It is wisely said, weak faith in a strong branch is infinitely better than strong faith in a weak branch. Saving faith, as we affirmed earlier in the service, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. It may be weak or strong. We affirmed that we may often, in many ways, be assailed and weakened, but that faith gets the victory through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Personally and corporately, we made a triumphal entry into our Christian faith, but we are assailed much, and we may be weakened, but fear not. Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, will take us ahead. And so with all the failures of the Israelites, they still made it to the promised land. With all our failures, personally and corporately, we will make it to the promised land because God is leading the way. And may that truth set you free. Amen.